Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. Start of the week, Monday the 13th of November, coming up on the program, radical changes proposed to South Africa's refugee laws. Hospitals in Gaza have been under relentless bombardment over the past 24 hours. There is help at hand for the Hawks in solving complex financial crimes. The impact of chronic police underfunding and is South Africa winning the fight against tuberculosis? There are new figures out from the World Health Organization. The Home Affairs Minister, Dr. Aaron Motswaledi, has published a new white paper on citizenship, immigration and refugee protection for public comment. He's called for South Africa to, in his words, press the reset button when it comes to international agreements on refugee protection. The minister is with us now. And firstly, how does the proposed withdrawal from the 1951 UN Refugee Convention and then the 1967 Protocol align, I wonder, with international human rights standards and South Africa's obligations? under other existing international treaties? No. If you read my speech very well, and even the white paper, we're not saying we are withdrawing. We are saying the manner in which we entered it differs from lots of countries, especially on the African continent, because Article 42 of that convention gives countries the right to, when they ratify the convention, it gives them the right to present reservations and exceptions. In other words, things that they think they are unable to do or things that are unacceptable to them. Almost every country did that. Now, in 1996, when South Africa entered into convention, it entered into it lock, stock, and barrel, meaning everything that is in the convention must be done by the country that ratifies it. And Jeremy, that's not possible. Even rich countries have got reservations where they show exactly that which they may not be able to do because otherwise we'll be promising things, we'll be lying to people and saying we're prepared to do everything when actually that is not so. So what specific changes are you recommending then? No, we are just saying we look into convention, we ask to withdraw, come back and correct it and start making changes. The ones I can make very clear even now, because I don't want to preempt the others, because we are making a proposal to the public that allow us in the white paper to do so, then we'll show you the changes. The one I can make, for instance, is Article 33 of the convention that talks about non-refoulement. What South Africa did in 1998 was to take Article 33, sub-Article 1, and left sub-Article 2, which actually gives the country alternative 
when they are faced with a situation where somebody, for instance, is in a country as a refugee, but is posing dangers to the country or to the security of the country. In terms of what we have signed for, we can't refoul such people. That means you can't send them back where they came from because you signed for non-refoulement for everybody. Those are the things that we would like to change. The important thing, of course, Minister, is to make sure that there are specific measures in place that don't compromise the safety and rights of genuine refugees and asylum seekers. How would you propose getting that right? Absolutely. They are compromised now, Jeremy, because of these lax laws and the problems that we are having. The real refugees that deserve refugee status are not served because there are lots of people who are pretenders who are not supposed to be part of the refugee regime of the country. So they are actually taking space for those who are real, real and bona fide refugees. And it's actually one of the things that we want to, to achieve. That's why we call it a white paper on citizenship migration and refugee protection. Minister, there's some concern that's been expressed today that new policies might lead to increased xenophobia or discriminatory practices <coughs> against migrants in South Africa. Are you cognizant of that? And if so, how do you plan to deal with it? Or how would you deal with it? No, 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 no. I don't know exactly why they are saying so. Maybe they are the ones who must come and show us where the concern comes from and exactly what is the basis of that concern. I don't think we can stop correcting things in our country on the basis that whatever you do will be called xenophobia. I don't think so. I outlined clearly in the speech exactly why, what led to these changes, what are the problems that we're experiencing. That should be very clear. And I'm not sure where xenophobia comes in there. Minister, ultimately, what is the government hoping to achieve from these changes? The government is hoping to achieve the out to alignment of citizenship of the country, of refugee protection, of immigration. Because as it is now, these are three different laws that exist separately. And most of the time, they even contradict each other. Jeremy, the person you call a refugee today may end up being a citizen. So you are talking here of one person but they are ruled by two different laws. So when the white paper is accepted, we are hoping to make sure that the Citizenship Act is repealed its entirety, the Citizenship Act of 1995, the Refugee Act of 1998, and the Immigration Act of 2002. We repeal them and we start from the scratch. I even mentioned in the document that the Citizenship Act we have in the country is a, a replica of the relic of the past. It's a replica of the 1949 Citizenship Act, which was under the Union of South Africa. If you read it, it's male chauvinism and sexism and racism at its best. And a few words have been changed there. It's not our DNA to have such an act. It's not in our DNA. Minister, among the proposals in the white paper are that the powers of immigration officers and the Inspectorate for Immigration Services be strengthened. You're also calling for an independent immigration division to be established when it comes to the granting of visas. In what respect is that going to, or would you see that being enacted, and why are those changes necessary? They are necessary because I clearly said the present system we are following is unworkable, is very weak and causing us problems. For instance, when you process somebody's documents, Jeremy, 
you've got to understand international legislation because it's a very complex area. The people who are using now called refugee status determination officer are ordinary public servants. They always find it very, very difficult to interpret these rules. Even when it comes to visas, Jeremy, we had to hire lawyers. We hired lawyers in January this year, nine lawyers. We trained them for, for three months and they started working in April because we have realized that even the adjudication of visas gives people tough time because they are very much integrated into international law and interpreting statutes cannot be done by an ordinary person. I'm going to leave it there. Dr. Aaron Motswelady, Home Affairs Minister, thank you very much indeed, sir. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. I want to focus now on the Israel-Hamas war and hospitals in Gaza have been under relentless bombardment over the past 24 hours. The Al-Shifa hospital complex, the biggest health facility where staff for Doctors Without Borders are still working, have been hit several times, including the maternity and outpatient departments. This has resulted in multiple deaths and injuries. More now from uh, Doctors Without Borders and Claire Waterhouse, uh, head of operations support. Can you give us, firstly, a very brief overview of the situation, which I imagine is changing almost uh, hour by hour? Hi, yes, absolutely. It is changing very quickly. In fact, we have actually lost contact with most of our staff since yesterday who are still working at Al-Shifa Hospital. We do still have some staff who are still living in northern Gaza, and they have told us that there's still heavy bombardment of the area and that they can see, uh, you know, bodies on the streets, tanks, uh, soldiers, etc. Um, but what we do know from yesterday is that we have a team in Al-Shifa Hospital. We know that the hospital is barely functioning. In fact, I'm not even sure if you could call it functioning anymore. There, There is no food, no water, no electricity, no fuel. Uh, in the words of one of our surgeons yesterday, we are alone now. No one can hear us. And so we are trying to make sure that we can hear them. Claire, is there any way that uh, your organization can address the shortages, particularly in medical supplies and surgical equipment? Or are you reaching the point now where you're giving up hope? Well, we never give up hope and we are trying every single avenue uh, possible. We MSF is a neutral and impartial organization, so we are speaking to literally everyone possible trying to work on this. We did manage to get some supplies in about a week ago. We got 26 tons of medical supplies in, but actually that is a drop in the ocean uh, compared to what we need right now. We are uh, using those supplies. We are donating them to other hospitals, uh, but uh, to be honest, at this stage, it's not enough to prevent the deaths of innocent civilians. We, The only thing that can really help at this stage and what we are calling for strongly, we call on the Israeli government for a ceasefire and we need to stop targeting healthcare facilities, stop targeting, targeting healthcare workers and stop targeting hospitals. It's against international humanitarian law and innocent people are losing their lives. The problem is also exacerbated, is it not, by a loss of electrical power, particularly at this particular hospital. Um, In what way then are critical hospital operations being compromised, if in fact they can be carried out at all? Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, at the start of the weekend, we had 39 premature babies on incubators. Without power, we cannot run those incubators. We have sadly already lost three uh, premature babies. We are struggling. We're doing manual ventilation on tiny preemie babies at the moment, uh, and we are deeply, deeply worried about losing the rest of those babies. We have at least 17 patients in the ICU. We've also got 600 patients who are post-operative. You know, they 
they've mm. they've just been operated on they can't walk anything like that of course many patients are on ventilators or should be on ventilators we cannot run ventilators without that it's also simple things like lighting at the moment when operations are carried out uh, surgical operations they are done under the light of a cell phone in a corridor with no anesthetic and i am sure i don't need to tell you what what that must feel like it's it's incredibly incredibly painful and yeah just a a really horrific situation on the ground claire apart from the call that your organization has made for the ceasefire are there specific actions that you're taking at a broader international level i wanted to advocate this call for a ceasefire and perhaps more importantly uh, to protect staff and medical facilities in gaza itself Well, we are absolutely negotiating and pushing at every single level possible. Uh, We uh, there's no door that we are not knocking on at this stage, really pushing hard. But the truth is, you know, we are an NGO. What we need is other governments. So we are calling on the US, we're calling on Canada, the European Union, the the League of Arab States. All of those kinds of power brokers really need to be pushing for this as well, because there's an, it should not be on NGOs to be uh, doing this. It should be governments who have real political power who can push for these things. And we continue to call on them to do this. We are doing everything that we can, uh, but it's an extremely difficult situation. And, you know, our hearts are with our patients and with our colleagues who are stuck in Gaza, who are honestly absolutely heroes. They, Many of them were given the chance to move down to the south of Gaza and said, we can't leave our patients. We need to stay here with them. Of course, now we've lost touch. We are extremely concerned about the situation. We don't know what has happened to our very own colleagues, let alone the patients they were trying so hard to save. I'm going to leave it there. No doubt we will speak again in coming days. Claire Waterhouse from uh, Doctors Without Borders. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. There are new figures out from the World Health Organization that show an estimated 54,000 people have died of tuberculosis in South Africa last year. About 280,000 fell ill with the disease. It begs the question, just how bad is the situation right now? And with an expert assessment, I'm joined by Dr. Norberton Jecker from the Department of Health. And let's look at this first of all, doctor. These WHO figures indicate that South Africa is meeting its targets relating to the reduction of TB cases. That's a good thing, but not when it comes to reducing deaths due to TB. I'm wondering where the disconnect is. Tuberculosis is really an old disease that continues to be a challenge uh, after so many years. So the incidence uh, uh, target was supposed to reduce by like 50%. We've gone above that. We reduced 53% between the the year 2015 and 2020. And that's really comparing the estimated number uh, against the number that we we put on treatment. So that's what has been done here. Now, regarding the death rate, we only reduced 17%. So that's not good enough. We didn't meet our target. Now, the our epidemic is different in the sense that it's really driven by HIV. I think that that's something that makes it quite uh, a unique epidemic of tuberculosis. So what needs to change, doctor, in order to reduce the number of deaths that the country is experiencing? So l- let me just say that the incidence reduction itself 
is also due to our powerful antiretroviral uh, program. So if we treat TB and HIV well, we see gains in uh, tuberculosis. However, the issues around nutrition are not uh, really addressed. Uh, we, we give good treatment to our patients, but we, we, we have some challenges regarding social support for patients. Nutrition is not something that we monitor and, and do something about. We know that our colleagues at uh, social development are doing something, but uh, I think we need to improve more issues around social support, issues around nutrition, mm. because the survey that was done by the World Health Organization showed that 56% of our patients undergo what you call catastrophic costs. They, they spend more than 20% of their income on TB-related issues when they, they have TB. So although treatment is free, but people travel to the clinics, they buy vitamins, sometimes they buy expensive food for themselves. So we also need to educate them around that, you know, in terms of mm. healthy diet and what they should be buying. They shouldn't be wasting money on vitamins and stuff like that. Dr. Njeka, I'm interested to know why support from the social side of the equation is lacking and what can be done to improve that to achieve the type of balance that you need in order to be more successful? Yes, I wouldn't say it's like, like I don't have uh, evidence, but I think it is lagging because when we talk to our patients, when, when we hear from our uh, colleagues, clinicians on the ground, they, they really report that patients are complaining, they don't have food, they go hungry, things like that. That's why I think we need to schedule a meeting with our colleagues and really strengthen our collaboration. I must say we work, but not uh, we don't give a lot of attention to this matter. I know the other day we're talking, we're planning to have meetings, but I think also nutrition is a problem mm. and, and it's not something that we look at. A, study, a recent study in India showed that when you give nutritional support to TB patients, you really do good. You improve their outcomes. So this is also new data that we're looking at and we're considering some interventions in South Africa around nutrition, around social support. Dr. Njeka, the WHO figures also refer to 11,000 people who fell ill with drug-resistant TB in South Africa in 2022. Is that problem getting worse, and are there ways to mitigate that? The drug-resistant TB is not really getting worse. I think the estimation has dropped. We used to be somewhere like an average of 15,000 or more, but now it's really come down. And that's understandable because your overall TB has come down. For 2021, we had an estimated 304,000. For WH, in the recent WHO report, they indicate that for 2022, the estimated number is 280,000. So it is understandable that the drug resistant TB is also um, dropping. But I think we have more success in the drug resistant TB 
you know, because remember it was so bad. We used to have cure rates of what, 10% around 2009-2010 through introduction of new drugs we've seen that increase to above mm-hmm. 60% which is basically a global average you know it looks small because 60-65 but it's a global uh, is, is on par with global community it was about below 50% for a long time but we continue to prove that and we started the six months regimen in September this year we try to scale it up in all our provinces, and we hope to see that improve further in the years to come. All right. I'm going to leave it there, and thank you very much indeed for the assessment from the Department of Health, Dr. Norbert Njeka. Thank you. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Now, to bolster South Africa's capacity to investigate and prosecute financial crime, the Banking Association of South Africa and the South African Banking Risk Information Centre are partnering with the Hawks to make what they term a cutting-edge digital and financial forensic analysis centre available to the directorate. My understanding is the centre is going to provide the Hawks with advanced training for around 40 senior investigators in essential financial forensic analytical skills, and this would obviously allow them to more efficiently retrieve and analyze digital data. The Chief Executive Officer of Sabric is Nishal uh, Miwalal, and he's with me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. I think the first question then is, what are the main deficiencies currently hindering effective investigation? Hi, good afternoon, Jeremy, and good afternoon to the listeners. No, thank you for the question. Uh, some, look, so let's understand a little bit of the history. The DPCI, or the Hawks, as we know it, um, underwent a process to do an assessment of its own capabilities. And some of the deficiencies they found was, uh, firstly, on the human side, the type of uh, skills that they had and the number of skilled investigators was a bit of a problem there. Then there was uh, access to certain types of software that would typically be able to conduct analysis, not just on the uh, devices that you and I would know would be found in crime scenes, you know, like SIM cards or phones, but also software required to be able to do financial analytics. So that was the aspect. And then the, the other aspect was the hardware and software and the security that went around the entire uh, thing of pulling it together. So it was the components of human, skill, human skills. It was the, the training and development and then the software and the hardware. That was the focus and that was identified by PCI. And the reality of the situation is that we are simply not investigating financial crimes effectively enough. Often they are very complex in nature, and uh, people are simply getting away with it, aren't they? That's, that's a correct observation. I think it's a massive frustration, especially on the banking sector side, because, uh, you know, many instances proceeds of crime are laundered through banks themselves. And so the process in which to address the criminality requires the investigating officers to do the forensic work. Um, yes, some of the work will always be farmed out to forensic firms, um, especially in the complex matters that requires a high degree of skill. But even in other kinds of matters, often those charges are omitted because the analytics is not done. So this capability helps to close the gap between having nothing and being able to actually do some of the highly complex stuff that's, uh, that's going on. Which is very important, but Sabric has also got to ensure, surely, the independence and the integrity of the Hawks' forensic investigations while being part of the process yourself. 
that, that was a non-negotiable actually, and that was a, a, a. You see, when when they when they identify the deficiencies, the idea was to build a customized solution that would not only solve the technological aspects, that but it would also ensure the independence. So there were quite a number of safe gaps that were put in place, not just from legal instruments, but also to the way the technology was configured and designed and who would have access and the ability to control what is happening inside there. So on the banking side, we we are agnostic of what crime is being investigated. Uh, we, we, we're not involved in that process. Ours is, is one to ensure that the technology works, that uh, there is support available to them as they require, and uh, to enable them to do the job. In fact, we don't even get involved in assisting them to investigate. That's, that's completely out of scope of the project. Do you think as a result of this we're going to see more criminals in the dock? Jeremy, I think that's the end process. That's the ultimate goal, right? In fact, we want, we want it to go even further. We want to see people uh, must be, the people must be convicted. I mean, that's the true test of things, right? convicted and an appropriate sentence. Uh, but um, from, the, from the assessments that we've done so far, there's a number of matters that are in the queuing system that has to undergo this process. Uh, some of them are quite old and already on the court record that needs to be wrapped up, and some of them are new and uh, what are deemed to be priority matters. So certainly there's a, there's a value chain and a pipeline that's already uh, created that needs to go through the system. Do you think this initiative will help us get off the grey list? I think it's a critical intervention. It's, uh, it was a must, you know. When we looked at the issues around what was the deficiencies identified in South Africa, the, the skill and capability of, uh, of uh, all police services, but in particular the Hawks, was an issue that was identified. So this, this is one of the flagship projects to close that gap. In fact, it's one of the projects that are, are being counted under those three pillars that the presidency is running and uh, the crime and corruption aspect. So this work is linked to that pillar and the success of that pillar. Thank you very much for joining us, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the South African Banking Risk Information Center, Nishal Mewalal. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. The police union pop crew says South Africa's police service is facing alarming budget cuts as crime rages, and this, it says, is eroding national safety and security. It's a worrying situation indeed. More now from the union's president, Tulani Nguenya. And firstly, what is the lived reality of your members right now? Yeah, these budget cuts for us have serious implications, firstly on service delivery and also on the morale of the members. Because what is happening there are no longer going to be conditions of service. They are not going to be improved. Like your danger allowance. We signed a danger allowance last year from 400 to 700 with an intention of increasing to 1.5. But now with this budget cut, it does not look as if there is something that we're going to get. Secondly, it's going to hamper service delivery because in terms of as the president in the state of the nation address, he indicated that it's going to do more employment. Now, if you are going to do budget cut, the first part where they are going to is on the HR cost, of which they thought is very high and everything. So that will uh, demoralize the member and also affect service delivery because policing in its nature, it's not a static thing. It's a mobile where they need to do crime prevention, where they need to attend to complain and what what then if those budget cuts then are going to impact on resources, 
you can see that the constitutional mandate now is going to be hampered and uh, people are going mm. to complain that police are not going to uh, are not giving them what they support could, could you explain to me where specifically crime fighting <coughs> is going to be compromised if these cuts go ahead it's going to be compromised on intelligent gathering that is the first key because you know you've got uh, operatives who are doing crime intelligence openly and there are those who are doing undercover of which they need to get more budget so that they can source information. And also, it will deal with interception uh, of dockets because you need to travel from one place to another looking for suspects and also crime prevention in, in total where members need to patrol and make sure that the uh, country is safe and what what. So now if there is no petrol, there is no money to pay the informers, and uh, there is no traveling, meetings are also to strategize, are supposed to be held on Zoom. Mm. Yeah, so those are the most areas where in terms of operations it's going to affect and create uh, serious challenges. So explain to me then, if we have poor crime intelligence as a result of these cuts, what type of crime specifically or what type of investigation is specifically compromised? Organized crime in particular. As you are seeing that uh, organized crime, the heist, because you need to have people who can infiltrate and deal with the planning at the planning phase. Because it's always said that prevention is better than cure. Other than to go and act when the, the planning is, is about to be executed. So infiltration is so much important. And also for the people that they can able to tell you the suspects are here, come. The person that we're looking for is here. So you need to compensate those people. And also on the administration resources, because you'll find that dockets are no longer going to be purchased. They'll be limited in terms of rape kits, these uh, rape kits and uh, blood samples and whatnot. So it's going to have a huge impact uh, when you cut budget because you need all those things. When a person go and report rape case, there should be a kit. It should be taken to hospital and those things should be transported from the hospital straight to forensic. So explain to me then how your union is engaging with Treasury and are you satisfied so far with its response? Look, as we are coming from the Congress, our plan is to sit down and identify all those areas, regardless that we have identified them uh, previously, but it's to make sure now we consolidate it and go to Treasury with the ACPS management and say, please, when it comes to SAPS, this budget card should be halted. You can look in other areas, but when it comes to crime prevention, crime intelligence, and also in the conditions of service, because the danger allowance, we still maintain that the danger allowance of the police, the life of a person don't cost 700 rand. If he dies, then you are going to say you are going to give him 250 but it's not going to be enough because we would have lost a breadwinner, a person who is responsible for the family. All right. So um, we are going to sit down with SEPS and go to Treasury and, and plead our case. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much for joining me. And with that assessment from the uh, police union pop crew, Tulani Nguena, thank you.
And as we close the programme, other stories on our radar. News 24 is reporting that the situation remains tense outside the Gold One mine in Springs, east of Johannesburg, as police use force to disperse protesting AMCU members. And two major hospitals in northern Gaza have now closed to new patients amid Israeli airstrikes and heavy fighting around both facilities. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.